Do you trust that sailor, Greenhill? I don't trust you. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Welcome to episode 28, which is Cole's choice. So what did you choose? This time I have chosen Van Diemen's Land from 2009, directed by Jonathan Alfterheide, and it is an expansion of a short film he made in 2008 entitled Hell's Gates, And both that short and this feature are based upon the true story of Alexander Pierce, who escaped with seven other men from the Macquarie Harbor Penal Station on the coast of Tasmania in 1822. Pierce is played by Oscar Redding, who also co-wrote the film with Alfterheide. His fellow convicts are portrayed by Arthur Angel, Paul Ashcroft, Mark Leonard Winter, Torquil Nielsen, Thomas Wright, Greg Storr, and John Francis Howard. Cinematography, notably by Ellery Ryan, who is a real superstar of this production. The film opens with this beautiful helicopter shot of the river snaking through the Tasmanian wilderness, and we have a voiceover from Pierce in his native tongue, Gaelic, over this immense and overwhelming portrait of beautiful nature that evokes two themes in particular. He starts by saying, I am a quiet man, dreaming on nothing. And he goes on further to elaborate upon simple pleasures and how those relate to a man's sense of self. And I think important to the film, how those things tie to a feeling of freedom and liberty. The second theme that he evokes is this relationship with how he perceives his God. These are themes that we'll come back to again and again in these voiceovers and throughout the action of the film. But it starts right here with this first beautiful shot that is somewhere dead in the middle of Terrence Malick and Werner Herzog. Now, there are two things that I want to talk about just in the first second of the movie of what you've just talked about. One being, I think some people might look at the scenery and not immediately think beautiful, but think dark and gloomy and foreboding and overwhelming, as you said. So I think that I I agree with you, number one, but I think it says something about the viewer as to how you see this wilderness. Mm. One of those things where your reaction tells someone more about you than the art you are actually assessing. Because if you said beautiful nature some people might envision squirrels having a tea party you know (laughs) leaping through a meadow or something and that's not what this is no but i am fully on board with you that i want to be inside of wherever they are the second thing is we don't as a viewer know immediately that that is pierce's voice Mm-hmm. And I think in spite of what we're about to do in this episode, it's very interesting, as I did, to go into your first viewing not knowing anything about the story. So it comes as a voice in the wilderness. Well, Pierce's story is something that I would assume a number of Australians are familiar with. But as an American viewer, when I first saw this in 2009, that I was completely ignorant of as well. And one other funny note, when I was looking at some reviews on Amazon, 
Someone under the category of missing the point said, there's too much Tasmanian scenery in this thing. <laughs> I didn't sign up for a travel log. <laughs> and uh, once you watch it, I think you'll understand how truly absurd that is in terms of the soul of this movie. Well, in addition to the beautiful cinematography, sound design is also front and center in this very opening section in two significant ways. First, we have the score, which in many cases throughout the film is barely more than a discordant tone that lays just beneath the surface, barely audible. And I'm the big dummy that said, is there something wrong with the projector? <laughs> I, I, I didn't understand that that's what actually was going on. Well, it unsettled you just exactly the way it was supposed to. Yes. And it also, it has the effect on me that Lucinda Williams's voice has on me. There's something in her <laughs> register, and I don't mean to say that she's a bad singer or a bad lyricist because she's not. Something about what her tone does to me, it sets off a buzzsaw in my head it's really uncomfortable for me to listen to actually I can't listen to her it makes my teeth kind of rattle I can't be the only one in the world but yeah it's something odd but yes it does that of oh there uh, I've got to turn my head or my neck it's doing something to me I don't exactly relate because you know how much of the music I enjoy I actually actively seek out noise yes feedback discordant tones that scratches the itch in my head in a pleasant way yeah this is more like those people who like to hear others whisper this does something to, except not in a good way this does something that make <laughs> gives me a little bit of a headache so i have to turn it off but well that leads us perfectly into the second element of the sound design right off the bat which if you suffer from misophonia or anything like that beware before you put this into your dvd player because we open with a scene of one of the prison guards eating a meal you know because you know me that that is the thing i hate most in the world is watching <laughs> people eat you know i can't stand it well it, even worse listening in this case it, it's it makes oh gosh yeah it make it makes me want to throw up a little bit it's terrible and you can't tell what he's eating and it which of course will play a role later sure if you don't know pierce's story this is just disturbing on one level if you know that cannibalism figures into this you're looking at him licking his chops on a chop of some and god knows what marrow he's feasting on right the plate is all bone and marrow and grease and it sounds disgusting and it looks disgusting i don't know about that it looks disgusting <laughs> and we segue from the filth and muck of that plate to the filth and muck of the shoreline where eight men are standing barefoot in the mud, a work detail, about to be dispatched into the Tasmanian forest to go cut down trees. First, they have to swim from shore to the boat that's waiting to take them there, and it is the most cold, gray, miserable place that I can possibly imagine. What do you think, though, it would feel like to be in the water? And water comes back many times over the course of the film. Do you feel like in this instance it's a relief? Or I'm going to say not real refreshing at this point. I don't know. I, I can't imagine what those living conditions were like. And I guess I think about my relationship to water. And anytime I have the opportunity, I'm going to go get in it. And even though they have no shoes and they're basically in 
tatters and rags, it still seems like it might be a little bit better than when they're on land and what they're going through and no baths. But well, they're constantly whitewashing it. They're constantly sopping wet anyway from the rain or from just slogging through mire. So no, I don't feel like it's necessarily any better to get into the freezing cold waters of Macquarie Harbor. Good point. So we're with this work detail, this group of eight prisoners and one guard on the boat that are going out into the wilderness to try to carve out something livable in this horrible place. The living situation for the guards is barely any better than it is for the convicts. And I don't know about you, but my first thought when they were talking about, well, as soon as we chop all these trees down, we'll go home, essentially. <laughs> I thought, well, you're just going to destroy this beautiful place. Oh. But it should be pointed out, Australia does have this origin as a prison colony. But, for example, in the very first dispatch of prisoners that they went to populate the area with in the late 1780s, only half of that contingent were convicts. The other half have to be guards, farmers, tradesmen. It wasn't exclusively a penal colony. And so you have to wonder what it must be like. It must be nearly as much of a punishment for the people who are not guilty of any crime than it is for those prisoners. So they find themselves literally at the end of the world, the end of the known world anyway at that point, trying to make something livable. We also have here the beginning of what will be a series of motifs that appear again and again. This film is structured a lot like a piece of music in that you have these repetitions and refrains, for example, river, forest, campfire, movement. River, forest, campfire, movement. And within these repetitions, within these refrains, you see the themes be developed. We see, in this instance, our first shot of unoccupied forest. We see the axe for the first time that will figure prominently in the rest of the film. And in this section as well, we have the second scene of eating. And this communal eating will also come back again and again and again. Well, now that these motifs are established, we see the action start to slowly move. We see a plan beginning to develop in Green Hill's eyes. The prisoners, one by one, start to, they're either looking at each other or they're getting up slowly. So clearly some kind of a plan is unfolding. And the guard is oblivious at first. He talks too much for someone who is supposed to be doing that type of job. Sending one man to guard these eight men in the first place seems completely foolish to me. And he is quickly overpowered and taken advantage of because not only is he talking too much and not paying attention, he's actually attempting to share and to be gregarious. And I think that stems from the fact that he recognizes that their situations are not much different here at the end of the world. He wants to be humane. At this point, Pierce does not stand out. Yes, and I think that that's really important because, again, we still don't know that that is he doing the voiceover. We start to see Pierce set apart a bit from the other prisoners. He doesn't share, initially, the common language of the other prisoners, which is English. He is speaking solely in Gaelic, which, again, going into the first viewing not knowing as much, I had a little bit of sympathy for him almost as an immigrant mm. of this crew. 
Now, he is able to speak with other prisoners who also speak Gaelic, but he solely maintains Gaelic. He does not come out with English until much later. And if you take that element and you combine that with what he is saying in the journals, he seems like almost a simple, gentle person. Was that just my idea? No, it didn't occur to me so much that he was an outsider, like an immigrant, because since you've got English, Irish, and Scottish prisoners, I was more focused on alliances. I guess I was looking for those connections, specifically English versus Irish, which comes into play quite a bit because that conflict goes back far before 1822. So no, I was not thinking of him as a loner or outsider necessarily. To me, at least this time, since it was the second time I'd seen it, he seemed much more shrewdly political. But that was only because I knew the outcome. Gotcha. I'm thinking about, again, just that first time. And it did strike me that people talk around him and about him Mm -hmm. less to him. That that's what really stood out for me. And he's also the first one to get a little bit injured slightly. So it's almost kind of as if he's being set up as the weak member of the herd. At least that's the idea that I had. Um, Again, not knowing what was going to happen. mm Mm-hmm. Or, in fact, if you did know it was a story of survival and cannibalism, that he might be the first one culled. Yes, because he's certainly not a brutish thug at all. Violence doesn't seem to be innate inside of him. So we start to see the beginnings, at least, of the group dynamic that will unfold throughout the rest of the movie. You've got, if nothing else, an alliance between Greenhill and Travers, who are more than just convicts thrown together in this they are actually it is implied romantic partners you do have a sort of loose affiliation of the irish convicts and then you see what seemed to me like the outlier bodenham the youngest the most brash and arrogant and probably most foolish of the group he seemed like the one who was singling himself out who would most likely be culled, I thought. He's English. Mm-hmm. He's ready to fight at all times. He looks like a cross between Christian Bale and Frankenstein. <laughs> so the guard notices something is up, asks, where's Greenhill? They set upon him. He's stripped of his clothes, which I cannot think of a more vulnerable position to be in than completely naked in the Tasmanian wilderness. That nakedness of that man stands out so much to me in terms of vulnerability and the sheer terror you would feel. It's strange and interesting to me what a difference a layer of clothing made to me when I was watching him there exposed that way. And he asks them a very reasonable question. Where will you go? There is nothing out there. Their escape is foiled by a pair of armed soldiers. They're going to run to the water, they think. And get to their boat. Not knowing that a pair of soldiers with rifles are there. And so they have to turn and flee into the teeth of the wilderness. So instantly their plan is thwarted. Mm -hmm. And we learn right away there is not enough food and there's nothing to hunt. Man is clearly an unwelcome presence in this forest. Again, we see another one of those beautiful shots of unoccupied forest that is static for several seconds until these escaping convicts burst into frame fleeing through the scene cutting a path through the foliage. And as they're being chased, they stop for a moment to catch their breath, make a sort of a plan, and Pierce specifically says at this point, I can't move, in Gaelic again. 
that he's so scared that he can't move. And really, they could have filmed the entire movie in a very small circle and just slightly moved the camera a few inches to the right or the left because everything looks exactly the same. It's unending. It is unending. I disagree that it looks exactly the same. To me, I see very definite variations in the landscape. One or two in particular. And specifically the way they treat the landscape. Like I mentioned, there are several of these frames where it's empty. Devoid of people, at least. Devoid of human beings for a split second. Or animals. Or birds. Right. You, there's, you don't see anything. And then there are a couple of frames in which the humans are very small and low in the foreground that even further illustrates the immensity of what they are trying to take on. Absolutely. So to me, each one of those had a very distinct character. It could be, again, because I've seen it once before and I was looking for signposts rather than trying to keep up with the story. I think if you go back and watch it a second time, you'll see how obvious the changes in landscape are. Okay. I do remember, and I know we'll get to them several times when they're in a different sort of field or top of a mountain or there's snow, but for the most part for me, the river and the forest on the river were pretty similar. But all I could think, again, was stick to the river. Why don't you just you stay next to the river, by the way, if we're ever lost somewhere? That's my tip to you. Okay. The river I'll give you, those interstitial scenes where it is showing movement down the river, those function more like chapter breaks, and so those are fairly uniform. The other scenes actually in the forest are the ones that are slightly different. And I don't mean to suggest that it's boring or flat or anything like that. It's not. So we have these men, inconsequential against the huge backdrop of nature. You see a little bit of camaraderie among the Irish. They're obviously short on provisions, like you mentioned. Pierce tellingly catalogs the food. Pierce is the one who mentions exactly what they have and how much. I think there are also some alliances based on age as well. I see that. It breaks down along those lines in a couple of cases. And I, my assumption was, and this could be completely incorrect, that they either had been in the penal system sort of around the same time or were from the same area. So it just sort of made sense that they stayed together. Here begins the cycle of campfire at night, movement through the daytime. My favorite instance of character development in these sections where they are trying to traverse the countryside comes up just after this, where they are wading through a cold river, and William Kennerly, who is probably the oldest member of the group... I would say he and Little Brown, to me, look like contemporaries. Mm -hmm, ...is waxing rhapsodic about what a beautiful day it is. And for the first time, you begin to think about how liberty is relative. They are free, yes, but thousands of miles away from home, in the middle of a forest that has no mercy for them. This literal ray of sunshine that is on him has him virtually singing. You know, and that's probably where it occurred to me, that idea of how would it feel to be in the river at that point? Mm. Great? Terrible? That seemed Some like manner in between. That seemed like a relief to me. This was after, though, they were no longer technically prisoners. They were free men at this point for at least a little while. Because especially in that landscape, it doesn't take long to be so far away from where anyone can find you that you are essentially not a prisoner at that point. So they're in pretty high spirits at this point. 
provisions are low, yes, but they still have food. They've had as good a day as you can have in the conditions that they are going through. And so we have the first campfire scene, which is somewhat lighthearted. They're exchanging ribald stories. They're bonding a little bit. And this is also the first time we really get an intimation of Green Hills and Travers' relationship. And correct me if I'm wrong, they do have a specific plan. They're headed towards the closest settlements. Right. So they ha- they still have a goal at this point, and they still have a direction that they're supposed to be going in. They do. And direction is extremely important in this. You will see several instances in the film where the character's lateral movement dictates something important, if only what it evokes in your subconscious. As viewers, so often, based upon any number of factors, even if only the fact that we read left to right in the West, when you watch characters on screen move left to right, it connotes progress, yes, movement toward the future. It is unsettling to see characters move right to left. That connotes failure, struggle, and hardship. And so... Over the ensuing scenes of movement throughout the day, pay strict attention to the direction that these characters are moving laterally across the screen. Immediately after the escape, they were moving down and to the left as they ran through the forest. Out of the frying pan, into the fire, essentially. They think that they have escaped. The direction that they are moving is telling us they have just made their situation worse. I thought I was just watching a Tasmanian travel log. I didn't know there was so much to this. (laughs) Once they are free and with food, the next time you see them moving is up and to the right, towards success and towards freedom. At this point, they are still committed to the idea that they are a unit. No man will be left behind. Even though Little Brown is starting to show signs of being frail and that he might not make it, he will at the very least be a hindrance. They reach a literal peak where they can survey the rest of the countryside And they are not where they thought they were going to be. They are not at Table Mountain. No. And that is very important. And then it snows. Jeez, what what else can happen? You see them standing arrayed across the top of this peak, surveying the rest of the wilderness. And you are right at that point. It goes on forever. Forever. It seems like there is no escape. I think, again, tell me again if I'm wrong. I think the original plan was eight days or something Mm -hmm. like that to get to these settlements. Or even less, possibly, by river. And you look at that and there's just no way. You're right. To add insult to injury, now it begins to snow. Little Brown is very weak at this point. And you see this screen movement thing I'm talking about come starkly into play here. This descent down and to the left after they have decided they cannot go further and they cannot stay here is a major signifier that this is over. They make their way back down from the top of this snow-covered mountain and set up camp for the night, and the provisions are down to the very last. This is where we see Mathers making the last of the bread. There's an interesting little bit of characterization in that scene, too, that I really like. He's patting together what is maybe a half a cup of flour to make this pathetic little loaf of bread, and he very guiltily licks the salt and flour off of his fingers. Yes. And you can tell he's conscious of everyone watching him do that. It's not overplayed at all. It's very subtle, but you can definitely tell he is aware that he is doing it, and he is aware of whether or not everyone else is watching him do it. And this is where Dalton, who is the person that most often speaks directly to Pearson in Gaelic, 
he confronts Greenhill about being lost. Yes, frustration is definitely mounting at this point. Food's running out, tempers are starting to fray. There's no going back to the prison camp at this point, as illustrated by a horrifying story that is told about an escapee previously receiving lashes until his spine was exposed. They must be committed to this idea of forging on. There's no turning around. We get one of my favorite chapter breaks here with the voiceover in which Pierce mentions in a very small, still voice that hunger is a strange silence. It's a beautiful line. But the next morning, this idea that they can't go back is not sitting well with everyone. And Dalton specifically tells Pierce that they have to go back. And we come again to another river crossing. And several important things happen here. One, Bodenham, the young English hothead, hothead, thinks that he sees an animal that he can kill. And Kinnerly, at the same time, scuttles his opportunity to do this with an almost childish glee. This so incenses Bodenham that he starts to go after Kinnerly. And interestingly, it is Pierce who jumps in. And this is the first element of violence in the group. And it's Pierce who punches Bodenham. It's not Kennerly, it's not someone else. To me, he looks almost startled that he did it. There's a look on his face that struck me that way. You're right. A lot of things start to happen in this scene. We do see that first incident of intra-group violence. To me, it's not necessarily unexpected because it is Irish versus English again. The way I read Pierce's reaction was not that he was taken by surprise necessarily by it, but that he is now beginning to make certain decisions. Factions are starting to form. Like you mentioned, Dalton approaches Pierce, suggesting we need to leave. The Irish-English thing blows up in particular in this spot. The group dynamics and the politics are really kicking into overdrive right here. And we're back at the campfire once again. And Kennerly is singing, and he says a line that I really love when they're talking about do you have sweethearts at home? And he says, I hope I don't, for lonely she'll die. Yes, the tone and the mood has changed drastically from the previous swapping of dirty stories. These are now melancholy songs of home and longing and despair, and they are not nearly as confident about the outcome of what they have undertaken. Tellingly, Pierce is now very separate. This is the first time we don't see him interacting in a friendly way with his fellow Irishmen. Before, he didn't have necessarily a great deal to say. At this point, it feels very much like he is purposefully isolating himself from them and everyone else. I see in his eyes that this is the first time he is beginning to realize this is truly every man for himself, that alliances are unwise. With that thought ringing in his head, he goes to sleep. They wake up the next morning and they begin to move again, this time into a distinct landscape, unlike any of the rest of the forest that we've seen. To me, the trees are ghosts. It looks like a lost forest to me, and it reminds me a lot of a mangrove, Mm -hmm. except for water, it's just all ferns. It has that weird otherworldly, that's why I wrote lost forest. I'm assuming that's why you think ghostly. Mm -hmm. It is definitely unlike anything else that we've seen so far in the film. And to me, connotes a dream world, almost. A premonition of foul deeds to come, because Pierce finds an axe embedded in a tree 
and that tree appears to be bleeding from where the axe is stuck in it. And we hear Travers say, I'm hungry, Robert. Yes, Pierce overhears Green Hill and Travers plotting, and we get our first intimation of cannibalism here. We know there's nothing to hunt. We know they don't have anything else in their store of provisions, so they must be talking about something else. And Green Hill essentially is talking about what flesh tastes like, Mm -hmm. and then asks, do we all agree? The plot is discussed, and Pierce is reticent, but... Yes, he agrees, and Dalton draws the short straw. Dalton doesn't know he's drawn the <laughs> short straw, <laughs> but he but he has. And Pierce, his friend up till now, nods. Another beautiful bit of screen direction right here. Once this is decided upon, Travers and Greenhill move up off to the right, and Pierce has to come down and to the left to persuade Dalton it's time to move along. And this movement of Pierce down and to the left to basically lead Dalton to the slaughter indicates to us that his downfall has begun. His moral decay has begun in earnest and there is no going back. They still have a campfire that night. No song, though. No song. Are you in the mood to sing? No. And tellingly, I think Dalton says to Kennerly, rest yourself. Because he's the one who has asked for a song, and Kennerly says he just he's so hungry he doesn't have anything inside of him to be able to do it. And Dalton says, no, I, I understand. And it's oh, that last moment of sympathy for him because it is in the morning when his end comes. Yes, this is the last somewhat good night's sleep anyone is going to have on this journey. Dalton is awakened by an axe blow to the back of his head. And it is Greenhill who is wielding the axe. The blow does not kill him right away. And this is terrible. He has a series of seizures. It's it's an ugly, ugly death. It's the first moment of true brutality that we see. This is different from the tempers flaring and the outburst of violence that we saw before. This is gruesome and evil. And it gets worse. Considerably. Travers then slits his throat. They have to bleed him so they can eat him. According to Pierce's testimony, it has been 15 days at this point. They don't spell that out explicitly in the film, but in his confession, that's how long it had been. That's the level of hunger that they're at. They took, at best, eight days' worth of provisions into the forest, and it has now been seven more days than that. And Pierce watches this, and he walks away. You talked a few moments ago about that moral decay starting, This is when I started to think about him becoming the person that he is or always was, or this is purely situational. And then close up on that pot. The stew of disgusting origins. Organs? (laughs) Did you mispronounce that? No. Because... That's what it is. Yeah. And it's Kennerly who then gives Pierce... The bundle that contains the rest of Dalton and says, God forgive you, makes him carry it. We have two very distinct factions at this point now. Those that will participate in this and those that will not. Kennerly and Little Brown will have no part of this. In fact, they separate themselves from the group. They are going to take their chances on their own. Even in as bad a physical condition as Brown is, they are going to forge their own path and see what comes of it. 
And why do you think it is that they didn't choose Little Brown to be the first victim? You take the young, ostensibly, you know, stronger person over the older, dying person. You don't want to eat sickness. Good point. For one thing. Tenderness for another. Dalton is a sweet piece of veal compared to Little Brown. And almost in the same way as they had evaded the soldiers at the very beginning, when Kennerly and Little Brown decide to leave, we don't see them again. I mean, they turn and they're gone. They're vanished. As a vegetarian, oh, where I'm afraid does to know where this is going? <laughs> where does cannibalism as a taboo rank on that scale of infractions? Or is it something entirely different because it is a matter of survival? Is it a separate other category? I have a problem even with it as taboo. Mm. Because if I'm thinking of the specific instances where I had learned about cannibalism, and you know that I love survival stories, Mm -hmm. and so In the Heart of the Sea was one of the first that got me into that genre, and it is very much based around cannibalism, it seems completely in those terms situational necessary so it exists as a completely other category oh and alive about the soccer team Mm. in the andes it is inconceivable to me that anyone would look back on those situations and say oh how could you possibly have done that what else are you going to do die yeah you have my permission (laughs) to eat my middle-aged body or my old body, depending on whenever, whenever it is that we're somehow stuck where you're going to have to eat me. No matter when that happens, you are one sweet piece of veal. Thanks, honey. <laughs> we have these stories as a culture. I get the impression that Pierce's story is a pretty notorious one in Australian history. Several film versions of this have been made. There's a pretty famous literary account of it. We have our Alfred Packer stories, our Donner parties. Since it's tied to a group of convicts, when it takes place in the wilds of Tasmania, does it suggest something to you about Australian origin or identity? And do these stories like Alfred Packer and the Donner Party do a similar thing for you when it comes to frontier America? I hadn't thought about it in terms of Australian identity, so I don't think that I can competently speak to that Mm -hmm. from the american standpoint i was obsessed by those stories from a very young age and it did very much speak to our identity of going into places where no one had particularly been before and the frightening side of this sort of go west Mm -hmm. attitude Mm -hmm. the conqueror becomes the conquered there's your manifest destiny buddy and the flip side of religious puritanism as well that what actually lurks inside of us you can think that that's a taboo or you can think it is an essential part of our nature as animals us enjoying the kind of stories and history that we like do you think though for instance alfred packer is as widely known a story as we feel like it is or is that our bias gosh i don't know i seem to be the only one looking for stuff on the donner party when i was a kid so maybe (laughs) not (laughs) But I I guess we're kind of weirdos sometimes. Possibly. To get back to the film, we are at the point where Bodenham freaks out a little bit. He loses it when he notices that Kennerly and Little Brown are gone. 
Why do you think he was so upset? I was just about to ask you that myself. Is it a sense of security? Is it because they truly vanish? I mean, they're just gone from one second to the next. Is it that all of these stresses and pressures are weighing on him? I think it's some of that. I think it's the trauma of what he's seen, but I think it's also because he now understands that this is happening, this is real, and he is next in line. I think he understands the ramifications of their being gone, whittles it down to Pierce, who has demonstrated himself to be physically stronger, Travers and Greenhill, who are an alliance now, it's their two against everyone else's one, and Mathers, who you could say is maybe as dispensable as Bodenham, but he realizes emotionally he's the weak one. He knows that he will be next one on the block, I think. I think the first thing that occurred to me, though, was that sense of daddy's gone. Hmm, okay. A little bit more of a childish reaction first. I don't see his wheels spinning yet. Okay. But that seems like a very reasonable thing. Maybe I'm attributing too much self-awareness to him. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is more of a knee-jerk thing. Maybe it's an instinct. Maybe it is about security. But to me, it seemed like if he is fully grasping the ramifications of this, he knows he's next in line. Because now we're down to five. And two of them are lovers. So there's some sense of security within that little alliance. So yes, if you think about the sheer mathematics, it's starting to look pretty bleak. We come to another river crossing. Yet another demonstration of character. Probably the most important one so far. The river is angry and very high at this point. It seems almost like it might be impossible to cross. Pierce does not accept that. We see him act decisively for the first time. We see him take the lead for the first time. He wades into the river and it sweeps him along instantly, but he manages to, little by little, swim to the other side and show the others that a safe crossing is possible. Pro tip, tilt your toes down. Is that how that works? Mm -hmm. What does that do? That gets your trajectory going uh, smoothly so that you can actually stay in the water as opposed to, say, you're you're trying to sit up or put your legs down. Mm -hmm. You're going to be banged against rocks, but you point those toes down and you can also cross your arms over your chest as well. And you're just like a little canoe. Hmm. Well, he must have known that because he managed it pretty well. It also occurred to me at this point how impressed I was with their dedication and with Alfterheide's assurance and as a first-time feature director, what he got this cast to do. These are not stuntmen. To me, it looks as though everyone rightly could have had pneumonia (laughs) at any point in the shooting of this. It looked miserable. It looked very much like they quite literally went through these experiences. Everyone manages to get across and we enter a glade where Bodenham is sacrificed. He is seated away from everyone, turned away, and he is just staring out into space in this terrible contemplation and hopelessness. It's presented very reverently. He's in a penitent pose, practically. And there is the moment of acceptance just before that final blow comes down, which we don't see significantly. We do not see the horrible fate that befalls him the way we did with Dalton. We see Greenhill, though, again at the axe. It is he who takes the blow before the camera cuts away. What we do see, though, 
at one point when old shoes get tossed off into the distance and they land next to Bodenham's body, which looks like it's has been carved. Mm. This is the point at which I first begin to ask, is this necessary? It is no longer, it feels like, an issue of nutrition. It is also survival in politics at this point. I do not feel like Bodenham's sacrifice was necessary at this juncture. Maybe soon, maybe a few days from now. But to me, this and everything else that Greenhill does, for instance, taking Pierce's axe and splitting it up for kindling is about fortifying position. It's interesting because we don't have a strict chronology. It's not as though the screen says day one, day two, day Mm -hmm. three, and so on. So we don't really know how long has passed or what they're able to actually get off of these bodies. So again, I guess I'm a dope going into this. I thought more about nutritious needs and how quickly you would have to go through something like this because they're on the move the whole time. They're not in one position building shelter. They have to be constantly moving and the caloric intake that that requires. And from this lover of survival stories, I think I thought about it a little bit more logistically, I guess. They had to be out there an awful long time for it to be necessity at this point. If Bodenham is still carrying that bag full of Dalton's remnants, it is not necessary, which is what he was doing when he was standing at the head of that trail, freaking out about Kennerly and Little Brown being gone. If they managed to get by for the first eight days on paltry rations of flour and water, essentially, how do they need to do this after they have just butchered 160 pounds of meat? That lasts a long time. Yeah, but they have no are... way to, to properly store it. You've got to go through that quickly because it's going to rot otherwise in those conditions. Maybe maybe we should Make later on. They've got no way to salt it. They've got no way to tan it. They've got no way. Yeah. Tan it? <laughs> you don't make much jerky, do I guess you? not. Make leather ottomans out of it. <laughs> Sorry, I got I got excited with the words that I know. I feel like it is not a necessity. I feel like it is a taste for killing combined with fortification of political position. Or at the very least, you get rid of the most troublesome of the party. Mm. The ones who are saying we're lost. The ones who are freaking out. The dissenters, the weak, the yeah. runts of the litter. Yeah. And then there were four. Mathers is ordered to carry the bag of meat, but he refuses to do so unless he also gets to carry the lone axe that now remains. And this is because Mathers knows the score. He's no chump. He's no greenhorn. No, he's no mooncalf. He's no jabbernowl. He's none of those things. Yeah. He knows that this is now me against him against them. He does still try to appeal to Pierce. Yes, because it's not Pierce that's been killing the others so far. So I think he's still trying to maintain that alliance with the person who still seems like he has the most humanity left. Every move anyone makes is suspect at this point. There is no securely turning your back on anyone. Mathers attempts to make soup, and it is completely inedible. But he is so distracted by the process of doing this that it provides an opening for Greenhill. Greenhill attacks him. It's not a fatal blow, but he does wound him in the head. Again, it's this terrible, slow death because he has this open wound in his head. Gravely wounded. And he's talking and alive, but 
there's no way he's going to survive this for any length of time. He makes the mistake at this point of relinquishing the axe to Pierce, thinking he has an ally. He thinks his enemy is Greenhill. A reasonable assumption to make because Pierce has very quietly remained in the background as much as possible with all this carnage happening. It's the smart play. A scuffle breaks out with Pierce, Mathers, and Greenhill. Travers has the axe but cannot bring himself to deliver the final blow. And Mathers is still fighting well at this point. For He's his life. fighting He's them all off. Desperately. And he begins to actually get the upper hand. And he is choking Pierce. And that's when Greenhill finishes him. And now it's three. Again, this is not necessity. We are far beyond nutritional needs at this point. An interesting note, actually, that backs up my reading of this, I think, is the fact that when Kinnerly and Brown split off in real life, they made it back to Macquarie Harbor. They did. They survived. Were they just back in the prison at that point, I yes. guess? The story is portrayed that eight men went into the forest and only one came out, but it's actually three. With this group, we are down to three. Greenhill and Travers are obviously the majority. A very vocal majority at this point, because Travers begins to mock Pierce throughout this section. He's taunting him. He's asking, do you feel the hunger? That doesn't last very long because nature, as it happens to do so often, evens the odds. Travers is snake bitten. He's going downhill very quickly and Greenhill has to physically help him and keep him going. He is a disadvantage. There's no way he'll survive and he is also now quite literally an albatross around Green Hill's neck. Very apt metaphor for a sailor. But at the campfire that night, Green Hill actually sings to him, and it's a very uh, nurturing, comforting pose. Yes, Green Hill will not abandon him. He loves him, clearly. It is much more than we were in prison together. He is his partner, and he sings a lullaby, essentially, to him. And at this point, I heard the first animal noise that I've hmm. heard so far, other than the scurrying of the snake, which we don't see. But I heard an animal at that point. I have no idea what kind of an animal, but it really struck me at that point. What do you think that that signifies? At first, I thought almost as if they are finally getting closer to something, hmm. some sort of civilization, some sort of habitation. Okay. And the terrible irony of that, that they've now culled everyone down and suddenly there's an animal. But it's such a unique sound and it seems so far away that it's still as if there's no way they could actually catch whatever this thing is. Sun rises once again. We have our next to last significant river crossing in which Travers is completely incapacitated. They struggle across and Greenhill lays him on the bank of the river and also lays the axe beside him, leaving it for Pierce because Greenhill does not have it in him to dispatch his lover. Now, Travers is begging for the end at this point. He's begging for death, but he still says, don't let him touch me to Greenhill of Pierce. And that's when Greenhill walks away to leave Pierce to do it. And once again, it's not fast. No. First, he chokes him with the blade. Then he punches him yes, he to, ultimately, to death. ultimately resorts to using his hands. This is personal. Again, nothing to do with food. This, to me, harkens back to that Irish-English thing one more time. And really, at the end, it looks like he essentially clubs him to death with his body. Overkill. 
is what you would call it if you were investigating it as a homicide scene. This goes far beyond what is necessary to end his life. The great majority of these blows are delivered in anger. And you had mentioned very early on about Pierce's relationship to his God. And he says a couple of specific things here about your soul to the devil. Let God have his heaven. I am blood. He's arriving at the point, I think, in which he considers God a peer, not a deity, which is borne out by the last thing he says in the voiceover. He sees God very much as just another axe wielder to be contended with. This campfire scene is decidedly less jolly. There is no camaraderie. It's down to the final two men. We're basically at the point of who's going to blink. Pierce puts a stone in his mouth as a method to keep himself uncomfortable enough to be just on the verge of wakefulness at all times. So he is sleeping with one eye open, essentially. Greenhill still manages to get the axe back in this exchange, but nothing in particular comes of it right then. It's just that power switching subtly back and forth. They're just watching each other, really. Mm -hmm. And keeping their distance. The next morning we have the final time that they are going to cross one of these rivers together, and they actually sit down and have the most extended conversation they've had in quite a while. The most extended conversation that Greenhill and Pierce have had, period. And we discover what Pierce was imprisoned for. Stealing shoes. All of this happened over six pairs of shoes, at least in Pierce's case. That's what he was thrown in prison for that got him shipped from Ireland to Tasmania. If you are either one of these men at this point, what purpose does it serve to kill the other one? Why not just keep your distance? Because you're not offering anything to one another by way of ensuring the other's survival. The only thing I can think of is you have to kill before you are killed. Why not just separate and not have it be an issue? Separate into nothingness, I guess, seems somehow worse. So they are inextricably linked because of the violence they've committed symbolically. Their lives are now so intertwined that they cannot remove themselves. Also, throughout the whole film, Green Hill has ostensibly been the only person to know which way they're supposed to be going. Mm. So is it that holdover of, well, he's the one thing going this direction? Whatever the cause, it's a moot point later that evening. We have our final campfire. Pierce gets the drop on Green Hill. Green Hill is the one who blinks, falls asleep, leaves himself exposed. Pierce takes the axe that Green Hill was using for a pillow pauses momentarily to regard Greenhill. Greenhill implores him to get on with it, which he has no problem doing. But once again, the first blow doesn't kill him. No. And after that, as he's saying, how can it be so beautiful, this death, he cuts his throat. And then I was struck by it's strip the cloth, cut the body, separate the limb. It's just a lot of that over and over. Before that happens... Pierce is now so far gone, he takes a piece and eats it raw for the first time. And did you notice, as he's eating raw, he's underneath this spider silk? And it's the first time birds are singing. And there's some other animal that has a completely different call, but again, it was that, oh, suddenly, we're closer to something and other things that are food, which are as much out of reach as as anything 
but it's all there, and it's quite a bucolic little setting. Were a man not sitting at the base of the tree, eating human flesh that he just carved from the last man he killed, it would be that picture of nature that you initially said people think of. It's the sun-dappled meadow, birds singing in the trees, butterflies flitting about. He just happens to be gnawing on human flesh. The end. The end. We get a postscript here that explains what became of Pierce. The authorities were never completely convinced of his story. They thought the cannibalism tale was to cover up for the escape of the other inmates. Because to step back, he actually made it out. He did. He did survive. He made it to the settlements that were nearby. In fact, in real life, he was free for 113 days from the day that they escaped from that work detail. He was caught, escaped again, in the company of another prisoner who happened to get eaten (laughs) again. He had developed a taste for it, I guess. He was captured one more time, eventually hanged. Eventually, he was executed by the state. Pretty soon after, in 1824, and this takes place in 1822. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a short time from some freedom to none and eating uh, some folks and then hanging. How Hobbesian does it get? Nasty, brutish, short. The whole episode is an extremely black mark on what is already a complicated national history. I'd be interested to find out what our Australian listeners actually think of this, because I'm curious how this plays into questions of national origin, national identity. There are a lot of parallels between Australia and the United States, in a sense, in that we are colonized by the British. They came to a land that was already inhabited by indigenous people and took that land. In Australia's case, you've got the prison colony origin, which is the thing that people might not want to talk about very often. In our case, it's the fact that all of our infrastructure and industry was built on the backs of an enslaved population that was imported for that specific reason. So I wonder how this fits into how Australians think about their development evolving from that prison colony to the country they have become. As an outsider, I have a very specific idea of the Australian identity in general that I have put together from just the popular culture that I've consumed. Are you able to crystallize that into something? It's very masculine, for one thing. Tied to nature a great deal. Anti-authoritarian. Unpretentious. Possibly that could be read in some cases as unsophisticated. Do you have the same general impression? I guess I do now that you say that. I really haven't seen enough of the Australian body of work to come up with a vision that's different from what you just described. Otherwise, it's sort of those odd outliers like Muriel's Wedding and Strictly Ballroom and things like that that sort of play up on the more outlandish, flamboyant elements of Mm -hmm. the culture. I'm probably thinking of a very specific version of the Australian identity that probably is from the 1950s that was then filtered to me through movies from the 70s. I'm probably wildly off base. Again, if we have Australian listeners out there that want to chime in on this, I would be really curious to see if one, they feel like that's accurate or at least was at some point, And if it has changed, how it has changed. It makes me really want to seek out more things so that I don't just have this very one dimensional concept. 
Well, I feel like this is a good start because you have the combination of the very harsh masculine energy of the story, but it is presented with such a crystalline aesthetic. You've got this balance of art and brutality in it, an intersection that might not have occurred 20 years ago, let's say. I think it belongs maybe more with those other films that you mentioned in that it's a combination of artistic expression on a very high level while grappling with this origin in which the reaction to the landscape was such masculine violence. So setting aside larger questions of national identity and focusing back specifically on this film, are there things that really stand out to you? For example, we mentioned direction and cinematography. I was thinking about the performances. Does anyone in particular really stand out for you? Oscar Redding, as Pierce does, obviously, I think he did an incredible job. I think the things that he had to communicate were so subtle, and he managed to do that while remaining in the background for such a significant portion of the film. And overall, this film has very little dialogue. Mm -hmm. So a lot of this has to be communicated non-verbally. Mark Winter would be the other one, but that was probably because of his relationship with Pierce. Dalton's relationship with Pierce being the most intimate thing aside from, obviously, Green Hill and Travers. And also because, in this case, Winter reminds me so much of a younger Daniel Day-Lewis. He's very striking. Yes. Those two stick out in particular. What about you? I agree with you. I also really liked Kinnerly, and that could be just as much because the character is so interesting mm. and so different from everyone else, but he really made me think more beyond just Pierce about who these people actually are beyond the prisoner system. Mm. What their life was like before. And what landed them here. And how has the viewing of this changed for you? Since I initially saw it? Yes, it, or has it? It's gotten better every time. There's plenty to see in it with repeated viewings. Like I mentioned earlier, the first time I saw it, I was just so overwhelmed by the power of the story. The second time I could actually take a minute and look at things like characters' lateral movement, landscape, and how it plays into these themes in fact, we watched it twice to get ready for this, and each time I saw something different that I had not seen before. And I anticipate the next time I will do the same, and I will watch it again and again. It's one of my favorite films of the 21st century so far. In the 2000s, it is clearly in my top 10. Well, you've been mentioning this film to me since practically the day we met, so it obviously made a huge impression on you. It did. Huge. I saw it for the first time at Fantastic Fest in 2009 as part of the festival programming. And it's always dodgy when you see something at a festival because you never know if it's going to hold up when you see it outside of a festival atmosphere and you're not running on adrenaline and haven't just watched 14 movies that day. Your judgment may not be as sound. It may be a completely different experience. And also sometimes an audience can really keep a movie buoyant in mm. a way that doesn't necessarily bear up later. This one haunted me, though. And this is why I chose it, ultimately, for the show. Because this and other films like it do a very specific thing for me. Slow and Quiet is especially indispensable to me because my brain is not. I am not, at heart, truly a peaceful person. And the meditative quality of films like these 
gives me an opportunity to at least capture that feeling for two hours at a time. It's not something I achieve very readily other ways, but they also provide that discordant, harsh, brutal element that satisfies the other part of me that might feel like a simply placid experience beginning to end is boring or in other ways unsatisfying. And this film specifically has meant so much to you that you've stayed on the track of trying to get a copy of it. I even went as far as writing to Jonathan Alfterheide years ago, a couple of years after I saw this, to see about finding it somehow. I eventually broke down and bought a multi-region DVD player this year, almost exclusively so that I can watch this film. If for no other reason, if I get to see this, it was entirely worth it to spend that money. Uh, that part is true. The broke down part, in quotes, is not true. <laughs> you were just waiting for the opportunity. And now, how many other multi-region titles have you bought since we've just had it a very short time? About a dozen. Yeah. And I'm glad that we did because I got to see this finally, and it is not necessarily an easy thing to find. No, unfortunately, for Region 1 viewers, it's impossible. You will have to either find it illicitly or get a DVD from outside the U.S. It's worth it. And hopefully that will change. I hope so. Hopefully I, a lot of people will get to see this. That's one thing I was thinking about when I initially made this choice for this. You and I chasing down these films from yesteryear that have somehow slipped through the cracks. Symptoms, for instance, being a great example this year that we found, that Mondo Macabro released after it being unavailable for a long time. This is your opportunity to get in on the ground floor with Van Diemen's Land rather than having to wait for it to be completely lost and forgotten and then resurrected by other cinephiles on the internet two decades from now. Well, oddly enough, that perfectly segues to my recommendation. Are we okay to jump into recommendations now? Do it. What okay. do you recommend? I recommend Wake in Fright mm. from 1971. There is no way we can have this discussion of this film or about Australian film in general without talking about Wake in Fright. Do you agree? I wholeheartedly agree. Especially after we were talking about that national identity being so masculine and unpretentious and all of those other adjectives I mentioned. Very much so. And I also think that you or I would do Wake and Fright as an episode and fully intend to at some point. Oh, definitely. So Wake and Fright from 1971, an Australian thriller directed by Ted Kutcheff and starring Gary Bond, Donald Pleasance, and Chips Rafferty, among many other people, including Jack Thompson, who is now one of the faces of Australian cinema. Mm -hmm. So it is the story of a young school teacher from Sydney who descends into personal moral degradation, sound familiar? And then some. Yes, after finding himself stranded in a brutal, menacing town in outback Australia. Now, this is an amazing film, and why I specifically said what you had mentioned right before leads to this recommendation, this film was considered lost. It was lost for several decades, and then in 2009, it was put out again in a special release because specifically Martin Scorsese showed it at Cannes again and through other elements that would be too long for me to go into. I want everybody to check out the Wikipedia article on this so you can find the journey of this film. 
And so you can also look into how the audiences reacted to this film in Australia. And there's a specific story about Jack Thompson watching it with an audience and what he says about someone's negative reaction to it. And I don't want to get into that. I want people to find it for themselves. Okay. So how are you possibly going to top Wake and Fright as a recommendation? Through the side hatch. Okay. Are you going to cheat like I always do? No. no. I thought about it. But I am... <laughs> Maybe technically am, because I'm going to mention a couple of other things that aren't necessarily uh, my recommendation. Sure, yes. Because Van Diemen's Land, for me, also fell in the middle of this cycle of what could be broadly termed Australian crime films in the early 2000s that were just knocking it out of the park. My favorites from that stretch going from The Proposition to Animal Kingdom on to Snowtown... For instance, those two I still haven't seen, um, so I've really got to get around to that. We're going to eventually. But out of that batch, in 2008, came The Square, a neo-noir directed by Nash Edgerton, which is fantastic. It is so wonderful. I wish... Let's go watch it right now. Stars David Roberts and Claire Vanderboom, and is in the tradition of classic noir, like Double Indemnity. Definitely. For instance, if you are a fan of Double Indemnity... Go watch The Square. It's got your illicit romance. It's got your underhanded deals resulting in a pile of money. My favorite thing about The Square, after all of the things unravel and everything goes as badly for everyone as it can, the fact that for the person that survives, because numerous people die as this plot unfolds, for the one that survives, that survival is an even worse punishment. Definitely. Being the one left alive is the worst thing that could have possibly happened to anyone involved in this story. It is a great film. It is so grim. If you love dark film noir, check it out. The Square from 2008. So two, once again, wonderful recommendations, Wake and Fright and The Square. And that brings us to the end of episode 28. Here at the end of this show, I would like to make sure that Ben Smith gets top billing in our thank yous. Ben is a listener that sent us a really nice email talking about his experiences with the show, specifically with the Long Goodbye and the Blue Collar episodes, and how he hated the Long Goodbye before he heard the show, but has since turned around on that and in fact was going to watch it with his dad and they were going to share that together after listening to us talk about it. Specific thank yous go to him because in that email, he also asked about if there was a way he could give us a donation. We never had really thought about it before. And so since Ben brought it up, we put a donation button on the website and he is officially our first patron. Thanks, Ben. It is truly gratifying to think that anybody at all out there that listens to the show would like to help us be able to continue to make it. But in Ben's case, I want to do something very special and give him a title. Okay, what is it? Since he is sort of our Founders Circle level. Okay, Grand Poobah. I w no, I don't like that one. Okay. <laughs> something Lantern associated. Oh. I, ben is our official Keeper of the Flame. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. No one else, no matter how many people donate or how much they ever donate, if they decide to use that button will ever get that title. Ben, it means so much to us that you even thought to ask. We truly appreciate it. I want to also say that I'm equally as gratified that he found 
a movie and it maybe changed his mind a little bit or prompted him to give it another viewing because we get so excited when people say, oh, I'm going to go out and look for that title because that's why we do the show. That is our favorite kind of feedback to get. In some small way, we get to feel like we are having a dialogue with our listeners that way. We get tons of great feedback, but this one this past week was extra special. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search those venues for our name. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I would definitely like to thank everyone else who shared links to the show or gave us feedback since the last episode. Thanks to Tim Lego for the birthday wishes. Leanne Kubich, Travis Trudell, those fine gentlemen at FUDS on Film, Jeff Duncanson, Micah Matson, who always gives us really thoughtful feedback. We really love it when Micah chimes in. He always has great things to say. And especially this time around, thanks to David Ashton for leaving us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate that. If you would like to do the same, you can find us on iTunes. You can subscribe there, rate or review the show. We are also on Stitcher Radio and Google Play for you Android users. And finally, if you would like to check out all of our episodes, including supplemental materials and that fancy new donate button, if you would like to take advantage of that, we certainly wouldn't argue with you. You can find that at magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 